Father's Jubilee Angelo, I've had the uh, great privilege of getting to know him through this job and uh, working with Crack on the Capitol. He's a conventional Franciscan friar. He's born in Binghamton, New York, uh, one of eight children. He joined the Franciscans in 74 and took the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience in 77. He was ordained to the priesthood in 84, and he's taught high school religion and served in the administration of his Franciscan family, then serving in parishes. The last 19 years, he spent in campus ministry working at Wake Forest and the Catholic University of America. He's a member of Our Lady of Angels Providence, which has friars working in Canada to Florida in parishes, colleges, and high schools. Um, if you could please give it up for Father Jude. Thank you, Brendan. So tonight, I'm going to talk about the inner Scrooge. No, I'm only kidding. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Christmas, but I hope in a way that might be a little bit different than what you normally get. How much time do I have here? 45 minutes. 45 minutes. And then oh. time for Q&A. Okay. So, what I'd like to do is talk to you about two aspects. Number one, what it means to be a part of this Catholic Church and how awesome it is and what we do when we do things well. So, one of the things we did along the way of being born into this world is when we became when we came into contact with many different religions that were predominant in the Roman Empire, we took them over and we changed them. So, what do I mean? So when you look at the liturgical calendar, you will see that Christmas, right, comes right at that time of the year when the sun, the winter solstice, and the sun is starting to come back. Jesus increases. In, in uh, June, we have the feast day of St. John the Baptist. And what happens at the summer solstice is the sun begins to decrease. So the church took those two pagan feasts of commemoration of the winter solstice and the summer solstice and made them the days in which we celebrate the birth of our Lord and then the birth of St. John. That makes sense? All right. And then we have all the different ways in which pagan cultures celebrated that winter feast. You know, the Yule Log. They also, um, in the Scandinavian countries, they had wreaths with candles in them, which tomorrow in Scandinavian countries, even though the predominant religion is no longer Catholic, they still celebrate the feast of St. Lucy, the light. Okay? And young girls still put wreaths of garland and greenery on their head, and they still walk around with four candles. So, you can't get rid of the Christian taking of the past and Christianizing it. Okay? Of making it into something that always brings people back to Christ. So even when we look at this season of Advent, we realize a couple of things. Number one, this season was difficult for the church to deal with. 
Why? Because we weren't used to celebrating things like the birth of the Lord. The major feast in the church year, obviously, is Easter. And so that feast, we could understand preparing for that feast, for that spring feast, by fasting, by abstaining, by getting rid of all of the products, the dairy products and things, cleaning out the larder. We can understand that. And then preparing in a penitential way for the reform that we would embrace at Easter. Okay? But Christmas came later as that major celebration. And so they wanted a season. Sometimes it was 40 days. Sometimes it was uh, much less. It all depended on where you were in the Christian world. It didn't become standardized until about the 4th century. And then we did the four weeks of Advent in terms of preparation for this season. How many of you ever had an Advent calendar as a little kid? Okay. Now hopefully it was a Christian Advent calendar. I've seen them now where when you open them up there's pieces of candy and Santa's picture and a little elf. Right? Oh, that's nice, but that's not really what that was for. It was to teach the catechism of the church to little kids. And so each, each day they opened up the new window and they learned something new about what the church teaches until we get to Christmas when we have the incarnation, the Word made flesh. Okay? But that's a really nice way, I think, for you to continue to honor this time of preparation. To return to something like that. How many of you have Advent wreaths at home? Not bad. They're great Christmas gifts, by the way. You know, see your mouth. Um, but that's something else. You know, you want to evangelize, we tell people evangelize, evangelize, evangelize. It's in the symbols that we evangelize. If you're living with a group of people, predominantly non-Catholic, and they begin to see something in the kitchen area, and you they see you know, the brochure about the letter. See, he agrees with me. Um, and you see uh, literature on what, it, on what the Advent season is. What a great way to evangelize your roommates. What a great way to teach them about Christianity. What a great way to engage in conversation about the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So all of that I encourage you to do. When we look at even how many of you set up a manger where you live as younger people. You know, you need to do those kinds of things. You need to get people talking. You need to take the risk that they're going to make fun of you. Oh, really? You really do that? Yes, I really do that. I celebrate what Christmas is intended to celebrate, the birth of our Lord. <clears throat> if it weren't for Catholics in this country, we would not be celebrating Christmas. The Protestants did not really want to celebrate Christmas, okay? And it was only with the immigration, with the immigrants, the Catholic immigrants, that we really pushed the issue because we didn't show up for work on Christmas Day. <laughs> so eventually, then some good Protestant businessman said, let's make money on Christmas. And uh, we have that. So I just want you to think about the contributions that the church has made 
to bringing about the gospel message and to making it real. Um, I think it's, it's really important that we understand the contributions of who we are and what we've done. When you look at some of the uh, different celebrations of Christmas, I think ours is by far the most um, extended. For us, Christmas is not just that day, the 25th, it's an entire season. So we have the Advent preparation, and then we have the Christmas season. It always kills me when you're in a parish and they stop singing Christmas carols after January 1st. No, you should continue to sing them right through to the baptism of the Lord. It's a, an entire celebration. You know, the 12 days of Christmas, that song, go look it up and you will see that during Elizabethan times and the persecution of Catholics, that, that was a way of teaching children about Catholic children about their faith. That's where that song comes from. I don't, I don't know the symbols, I always have to look it up every year. But that's what that song is all about. To celebrate the Christmas season is what we do. And when you look at all those feasts that come from the 25th on, it's amazing. You have John the Baptist, you have the Feast of, I mean, John the Evangelist, the Feast of the Holy Innocents, John Fisher. You have all of these different feasts that are celebrated in those days. And of course, the Mother of God, okay? The most ancient title of Mary we celebrate on January 1st. And we realize that the, give, the giver of God to this world. And that's the second theme I want to talk about. And that is, what does this season, what should we take from the Christmas season? And one word just kept coming up more and more. Manifestation. The manifestation of Christ to the world. So when you look at the Advent story, when you look at the preparation of John the Baptist for his birth and the preparation that he would give to the announcing of Christ as an adult. When you look at Mary's simple, yes, I will be the handmaid of the Lord. She begins that season of manifesting the love of God in the most concrete way, the taking on of human flesh. So we go through from those stories in the last weeks, the last days of Advent, the closest approach, and then we celebrate Christmas. So what happens on Christmas? It's really important to see in St. Luke's Gospel that it is described as this idea that Jesus was born in the place where animals were kept, right? Why? It's not just that he was poor, not just that they couldn't find room in the inn, but in the person of Jesus Christ, all of creation is restored to the goodness of God. All creation is raised up. So even the animal kingdom hears the good news and responds to the king of all creation. Okay? So you have manifesting of Christ to creation itself. You have manifestation to the lowly shepherds. Not exactly, you know, the top ten people in the world when you think about, uh, you know, uh, 
what, what a king would want, you know, or what would be important. So you have that. Then you have the manifestation to the three kings, to the Magi. Right? So you're manifesting Christ is being manifest to the Jewish people first, right? The shepherds, and then it's continued on with the presentation in the temple, right? Eight days after Christmas, when we celebrate the Mother of God, but it's also the reminder of the presentation in the temple. And Zachariah's prayer, now master, you have kept your word, you let your servant go in peace. My own eyes have seen the salvation. You have prepared in the sight of every people a light to reveal you to the nations, the glory of your people Israel. So we have Zechariah encountering the Christ child and then declaring who this is to the people that come. Then we have the kings coming. Now, you know, they, they made a little mistake. They went to see Herod first, right? Thinking that all of Israel would be in awe of the newborn king, not realizing, of course, the depth of his evil. But there we see gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the gifts of the nations, the gifts that represent what happens to us in baptism, that we become priest, prophet, and king, or kingly, or royal people. These gifts are given to the Christ child, and they are a reminder that this is the gifts that Christ gives to us. Then we see two other feasts, and the Eastern Church has kept these better than the Western Church. We have the Wedding Feast of Cana that is celebrated, and we have the Baptism of the Lord. Now, those two feasts are, again, manifestations of Christ. Right? His first miracle at the pushing of Mary. Do whatever he tells you. Okay? In which he changes the water into wine. And then the baptism of the Lord, this is my beloved son in whom my favor rests. There is so much richness in the scriptures about how the Lord is manifesting himself and his son, Jesus Christ, for the salvation of the world. So, I would encourage you to keep this season of Advent and Christmas by reflecting on those stories. Go back to Matthew's Gospel and go back to Luke's Gospel. And read those infancy narratives, that's what they're called. But there's one other narrative, you, it's not a narrative, but there's one other thing you need to read, and that is John's prologue. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. John, in his prologue, mirrors the Genesis account. So when you read the first chapter of Genesis, and you read the first chapter of John's Gospel, or the prologue in John's Gospel, you will see creation being restored again to the Word made flesh. Okay? So, I think you have a real richness there in what the church brings to you and how you can then bring that to others by knowing who it is that we present to the nations. Alright? I'll entertain any questions that you might have. That was my entire talk. Anybody? Yes? Alright. Uh, I got one, one question. Uh, I guess 
much uh, do you think, uh, you think that there is a, uh, what you would say, a reasonable balance between, uh, again, between uh, yeah, celebrating Christmas and happy and uh, having fun and enjoying it, but at the same time, just uh, yeah, making sure you're reminding and you're aware of, of, of what it's of what it's about. No, I, I think it, I think there can be a real balance. I don't think, especially with little children, there should be this idea. I know that I've dealt with some Catholics who almost punched me when I asked their little ones if they were excited for Santa Claus. We don't talk about Santa Claus. Sorry. So you're not normal. I get it. So I, I don't think that we should shield our children from that secular... And even there, we have to realize Santa Claus is really about St. Nicholas. And so, to tell the story of St. Nicholas and the spirit of giving, I think is very good. So to do that, to have fun, to go to Christmas parties, all of those things, there's nothing wrong with that. I think, you know, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves, however, in the secular celebration. So, I don't know, like, you know, you, you, how many of you are a little perplexed about the number of gifts that you have to buy, you feel you have to buy, you know? So, I mean, really? I just give people a little card that says, a donation has been made to the human fund. So, that's a sign, Bill. All right, so, but no, so you have to ask one another, I think, honest questions. Like, why are, why would we be doing this? Why would we be giving a gift? Why don't we, maybe, the gift that we give to one another is that we go down and we work in a food shop, in a food um, place, you know, for the homeless and the hungry. And we could do that together. Or maybe even do it as an office, you know, um, for the people you work with, rather than spending money on gifts and trinkets that are just going to collect dust. So I think there's ways that you can work things in to balance between the secular and the religious. I also think especially for children that's really important. So I know of a family that goes on meals on wheels from in November and December and they bring their kids along. Um, and that that's really important. Another family I know where they, you know, give allowance to their children, but then they say, okay, now we're going to buy a toy for the Christ child, and we're going to give that toy to somebody who won't have a Christmas. So you, there's ways that you can work all of those secular things back to the Christian message. And there's nothing wrong with giving gifts. We should be a gift for one another. So I think there's a good balance there. Does that make sense? Any other questions? Yeah. How about when you greet someone you don't know if they're secular or Christian? Will you say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays? Oh, I always say Merry Christmas. And then if they say I'm Jewish, I always say Happy, Happy Hanukkah. Okay? But no, I, I don't care. No. no, I mean, it's a Christian feast, so I usually say, have a holy Christmas, by the way. Yeah, so have a happy and holy Christmas.
And you know, you get people that give you like different books, like, all right, like, okay. That's what we're celebrating. So, uh, I, I, I have no problem with saying that. And if I know they're Jewish, I wish them a happy Hanukkah, you know, so, obviously. Well, I'm not religious. Well, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> so, I, I can't, you know, all this political stuff, this political correctness, I, I can't be bothered. You know, I mean, uh, this actually happened. I can't remember the full context of it. Maybe I was reading it. Family reported that they were in a restaurant and their custom, they weren't Catholic, they were, they were Christian, their custom is to bow their heads and to say grace at their meals. And so they did this in a restaurant. And a woman actually got up from her table, came over to their table and said, you know, that's really offensive. I'm really offended. You know? Hey, get a life, you know? Sorry, it's, it's not my problem, you know? So I think it's important, I hope that the mom and dad help their children understand that's all the story I remember. To understand, yeah, when you represent Christ in the world, sometimes you're gonna be rejected. And it's okay, it's all right. You know, we don't have to beat people up with the Bible. I'm not suggesting that or the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I'm not saying that. But to witness to our faith is a, a wonderful thing. And to do it with gentleness and love. It's a great thing. Yes? I think you leave them up. And then people say, well, what's going on? And you say, I'm lazy. No. I, I think you just tell people again. It's a, it's again, it's a moment to evangelize. We celebrate this season. I did 12, 12 and a half years in the South, and I worked in an ecumenical setting, and it was a formerly Baptist university. So, but they had a big um, chapel still in the university. So I went to the chapel right after Thanksgiving, and I see an Advent wreath. And it was that Sunday, and all four candles were lit. They just did not get the whole marking the days. They liked the whole idea of this symbol, but they didn't get it, you know. But anyway, and they sang Christmas carols every place on campus, all, all holy night, everything. And then you walk outside on December 26th, and every tree is on the ground. For many places in the South, Christmas ends, boom, it's done. Except for Catholics. We keep our churches decorated. We have our people, you know, keep their trees up. The manger scene is out. I think it's a great way to evangelize. So, you know, you just do what you gotta do. And you don't lose any sleep over it. I rarely get offended when people, you know, what are you doing? I'm practicing my faith, you know? That's all you gotta do. Any, any other questions? Yes. How do you how do you personally prepare yourself spiritually for Christmas? Um, I go on shopping. Yeah. <laughs> Amazon. Amazon, yeah. Amazon. No, I'll tell you, um, I'm 
kind of old-fashioned. So there's a, a prayer that I've said for years, 15 times a day, from the Feast of St. Andrew until Christmas Eve. And it's hail and blessed be the hour and the moment in which the Son of God was born of the most pure Virgin Mary at midnight in Bethlehem with that piercing cold. In that hour, about safe for my God to hear my prayer, grant my desires through the merits of our Blessed Mother and Jesus Christ. So I pray that prayer, and I, it's, it's called a novena, even though it's much longer than nine days. But I pray that prayer for particular intentions um, in preparation for Christmas. Uh, help with my homily, because um, I, I usually preach um, at a parish up in Binghamton, New York. Um, I help the priests out there. I also pray for a peaceful Christmas for my family. You know, um, that they, there's so much, I, I'm so, I admire you people. I don't know how you do it with all the pressure you know, that you have as a I just really pray that they don't have to give, give, in, give in to that, that they can really welcome Christ um, and also prepare for their future. Then I also pray for the conversion of all my nephews and my nieces, many of whom do not practice their faith. Um, although when I see them, I remind them that they need to practice their faith. Um, so, I mean, that's how I prepare. It's always with the idea of that prayer that I say is a reminder of what Advent is all about and Christmas. And then for the people that I would love God to give these gifts to them. So that's how I would do it. It's easier too, as a, as a religious, we pray together every day. So every day we are praying the Magnificat from Luke's Gospel, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. So there's all these little reminders that we have throughout the day that are reminders of what we are about in terms of preparing. As Franciscans, we also have the Franciscan fast, which goes from November 2nd, the Feast of All Souls, or the Commemoration of All Souls until Christmas Eve. Um, and then Francis put in the rule if you were really a rugged Franciscan, you could do the Great Lent from the Feast of St. Michael in September to Christmas. I'm not that great. So, um, but that's another way. So there are all these different ways that you can prepare. I think little icons are awesome. I don't mean painted icons. I mean, what speaks to you? If you're working in an office, there may be rules about that you can't display anything that's going to offend anyone. Okay, so you don't. So you might want to do something different. You might want to take a picture of your family, if that's allowed. Put it up there. So you're thinking about them and asking for God's blessing. You can do those kinds of things. Lots of times we encourage our students, we give them a rock. You know, you give them a nail during Lent. You can use whatever is going to remind you of what this season is all about. Okay? So those little icons are just reminders. Oh yeah, I'm going to start, I need to pray. I also start my day with the rosary. And so, um, joyful mysteries are probably my favorite. 
instantaneous these days. Everything. So patience is not something that people are used to. Um, I think life teaches you you need to be patient. Okay? But that's that's not an easy virtue. Uh, and especially in our day and age, it's not an easy virtue. So I think, you know, when you, uh, you read the letter in James, <laughs> you know, uh, see the farmer who places the seed in the soil, and waits for the grain to to be produced. You have all of these different images in again in the sacred scripture that remind us about patience. I mean, when you consider that you know the the ancient people of Israel were waiting thousands of years, at least fifteen hundred years, for the coming of the Messiah. Okay. So you know, there's, there's all of that. Yeah. Yes. Wait, one more time, can you hear? Sorry. Is it true that Advent's a penitential season, and if so, can you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, it is a penitential season, but its its emphasis is not so much on giving things up, like Lent would be more about changing your life to... Uh, to be conformed to the cross of Christ, right? So that's what our Lent is. Our Lent is about a conversion of heart and mind to become more like Christ in his death and resurrection. This penitential season is more about that expectation. So I, I may take up a, a particular practice, a penitential practice during Advent, um, in years past, the church was very strong about about it, but no longer. But that doesn't stop you or me from taking on penitential practice in order to prepare for the coming of the Lord. So it could be something simple. But I would encourage you to do it with that sense of gift. So maybe, maybe, it's giving up that latte three days a week. And then taking the money, and rather than saying, I'm going to use that money for Christmas gifts, I'm going to use that money for, uh, you know, uh, CRS, Catholic Relief Services, or the local shelter, or something like that. You know, so it's a penance that, again, reminds you of 
the fact that you have been given and I've been given so much by Christ, and so we share that. Is that helpful? Any questions about anything at all that you've always wanted to ask a priest? Uh oh. I've always wanted to ask this since 20 minutes ago. Uh, the name of that novena? I don't know. Okay. Uh, you'd have to look it up. It's probably called the Feast of Saint, uh, the Novena of St. Andrew. That's my guess. Yes. Where am I from? Is that what your question was? Being to New York. Is there another big Italian here? And well, whoa, yeah. What's that? Staten Island. Staten Island. All right. Yes, we we were on Staten Island until this year. We were on Toad Hill Road. Yeah, the secret. <laughs> the monastery. Yeah. What's that? No, we sold it. Um, and actually, we're very happy because we sold it to a Coptic Christian church. Um, so that they would. Um, they're very concerned about what's happening in Egypt right now. They're one of the more ancient uh, Christian churches. And um, if things get too bad in Egypt, they will have a place on Staten Island where they have a pope. Uh, they do. We would recognize him as a patriarch, but they call him a pope. And so um, he is, he's still in Egypt, but if, if it gets too bad there, they know that they can have a home uh, in Staten Island. Questions? Anything you've ever wanted to ask? Yeah. What's your vocation story? <laughs> well, I was a movie star at one time. <laughs> then my hair fell out. And... No, um, everybody's story is different. So let's start there. Um, for whatever reason, I always wanted to be a priest, even from the time I was very small, um, which I haven't gotten much bigger, but um, always. And um, so, uh, and I, we were very much attached to the parish where I was. Uh, we all went to the Catholic school. We all went to Mass on Sunday together as a family. Um, we prayed every night. Uh, together when I was a kid, uh, and I think those were formational uh, experiences. I had great nuns in grammar school, and I had great diocesan and priests. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was pretty convinced that um, Monsignor Fallon was God, you know. Uh, um, but they were just tremendous people, and just beautiful people. Uh, I'll tell you one story about I was taught by Dominicans of Spark Hill. But I got in trouble, hard to believe I know. But so I had to stay in 
for uh, recess. So sister, my sister said, you stay right here and don't move. And then she left. The door was open. So of course I'm going to follow her. Why did I have to stay there? So I snuck down the hall and I looked into the classroom where she went. And there she was and another sister and all these desks were together and we had two twin we had twins girls who suffered terribly from a uh, a muscular disease and i don't know what it was so there are these sisters working their legs talking to them moving their arms and all that none of the other students knew that these two girls were taking care of every lunch period so that they could function that memory was seared into my brain as far as this is what it means to be a religious, that it's a life that's given to others. Um, in high school, I was taught by uh, Sisters of St. Joseph of Carondelet. Awesome, awesome educators, great women. Um, I got in trouble again, and uh, so I had detention. And uh, Sister Elizabeth Thomas, who was my homeroom teacher, my Latin teacher, and my social studies teacher. I've struck out all three times. So anyway, she uh, she made me sit there. So she dismissed all the other kids, you know, from detention. And then she said, Mr. D'Angelo, you come up here. And I said, I know. And she said, you have got to stop fooling around in class. God does not want priests that don't know their Latin. So I was like, when did I tell you that I wanted to be a priest? So, um, that made an impression. Um, so anyway, I dated in high school, had an awesome time. Um, but I always knew that somehow, in some way, I still had that in my mind about being a priest. I had great spiritual directors. Uh, we were diocesan priests again. They knew my family. And they said to me, two of them said, you really don't come to the diocese. Now, I'm not sure why they said that, but the reason why they told me was because they said, you need a community life. Uh, so it's the 1970s. The church was a little turmoil at the time. Um, so they said, go down to the Franciscans downtown. So I went. I went down to the Franciscans, and then, and I read a story about St. Francis, you know, so. But it's really providential because now I really believe that my Franciscan priesthood is so united. You know, I admire diocesan men, but that's just not the life for me, and I can't, I, I could not effectively uh, minister, I don't think, as a priest without my Franciscan. Is that helpful? That's my story. Yes. What's the difference between our order and the others? We're the best, and the most humble. Um, yeah, we're we're. Um, I'm a Franciscan, but you can see that my habit is great. Um, most times when you see a Franciscan, they're in a brown habit, and the capuche, this piece, is cut here. Or you see a capuchin, and they have a long piece in the back. So, um, 
those the two families of Brown Franciscan people and Merritt and Nelson the Gray, we go all the way back to St. Francis. And there was a disagreement. From the time Francis founded the order, Franciscans have been fighting among themselves. So one group formed what they called the spiritual wing, and they stayed mostly in the um, um, in the hermitages, in the mountains, and then they came down and preached to the people. We, the con conventuals, meaning we live in convents, we stayed in the cities in big convents, and we opened up schools and did all those kinds of things in Europe. So those are the two main branches. Then the Capuchins came along and they said, the guys that wear the brown habit, they're not strict enough and they're not poor enough, so we're going to form another branch, and so they did in the 1600s. The wonderful thing about Francis, both for men and women, is in each age, people look at this story, they're inspired, and they want to live it, and they look around and they say, ah, not these guys. They're not poor enough, they're not penitential enough, and they found their own communities. And it's marvelous. I mean, I can't even tell you the number of Franciscan sisters there are in the world. I don't think our Lord knows how many communities there are Franciscan women. You know, so. And then we have the Poor Clares. Um, magnificent life of, um, in monasteries, following the life of Claire. The neat thing about Francis was that he really transformed Europe and the church. Because he said, it's not enough for priests and religious to be consumed with Christ and knowing him. So he created uh, the third order, meaning it was the third one in a row that he created. Not that it was lower, but it's the third one in a row, and that was for lay people. So we have secular Franciscans all over the world, some your age, some are 110, but they're all vision is to uh, preach the gospel by how they live their life. So we're different than the Dominicans, okay? Uh, and, you know, we're different than the Jesuits, all in it, sincerely. They, they are wonderful people, you know, and they're wonderful orders. Um, I think God puts you where he knows you're going to flourish. So, Secular priests, diocesan priests, I have the utmost respect for it. I don't know how they do it, you know, but they're just tremendous. And they certainly do this Yes. that stands out, 
But Francis only chose the road of poverty so that there would be nothing that would come between him and Christ. And so what he he's growing up in an age in which you have the emerging middle class and their pursuit is to become rich landowners like the knights. And so what Francis wants people to realize is that Jesus, as the word made flesh, his life made changed the world. And so he calls people back to that realization. Um, as in every age, it became so that people felt that the only way they could connect was through the priests and the bishops and, and the knights and all of that to God. And what Francis says is, no, your relationship with Christ is primary to your life. And you need to follow Christ like the priest follows Christ, or the, the nuns follow Christ, or the bishops. So part of it was to make that word made flesh. And so at Greccio, which is one of the hermitages, he celebrates, we think he was a deacon. And so we think he um, arranged for that mass on Christmas Eve. And he wanted to reenact for the people of the towns around um, the meaning of Christmas. And so he gets the animals and he puts people in his shepherds. He, he has a person being Mary and a person being Joseph. Now then, the story gets a little cloudy at that point. So does he bring a live baby to the manger and give it to the woman who's playing Mary? Or does he bring a doll and it comes alive? You know, so we're not, I don't want to discount miracles, but, you know, so we'll see. Uh, but uh, at the end of time, which one is true? But the whole idea was that Christ is real. He's not just up in the sky someplace far removed from our life. Okay. The Franciscans, we've done a great job of that. We're very symbol-oriented. <clears throat> we have the Stations of the Cross. We introduce that to the church. Um, we don't pray the Stations of the Cross. We just want everybody else to do it. But, um, um, so we, we did things like that. We, uh, to make Christ incarnate and close to us. When you go down to South America, Central America, and you look at their crucifixes, you will see images of the Christ who is so bloody and bruised and broken. In most of the world, that's their presentation of Christ on the cross. And people have asked me, How, why would you have that, you know? But when you look at the people's lives in those countries, they're deprived, they're poor, they struggle, all of these things. And the image on the cross is a reminder that Christ understands their suffering. Here in the United States and in the West, we kind of made him look really nice, you know, on the cross. But when you look at the crosses that were produced in Europe during the Black Plague, you see a totally different corpus. One of real anguish, and you realize that it was produced by people who knew suffering and loss. Okay? So, something to think about. All right. Thank you very, very much. I really appreciate it.
Can we get Father one more?